To the screen test of time, the podcast where your hosts Susan Raslin and David Daw watch every movie that was ever nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture, and then tell you if the Academy picked the right movie. This week we are starting on 1929/30 with Disraeli. I feel like I should have done like a bit in my intro. I just said my name, and I feel like I should like have done a catchphrase or something. Do you want to do a bit? Yeah, but see, I don't have a bit is the problem. Well, you'll have to think of it for next week. Maybe I should have just gone like, and I'm Benjamin Disraeli, but like, no, that seems like a bad plan. But it wasn't a bad plan for Mr. George Arliss. (laughs) (laughs) Flawless transition. Woo! I try. (laughs) My editing is amazing, Uh, just in in (laughs) real life. So I didn't hate this movie. I I have a lot of feelings about it. Yeah, I came around to like less hating it than like exasperatedly sighing at it. Um, <laughs> okay. Like at first I was like, I hate this movie. And then like by act three, I was like, you know what this reminds me of this movie? It reminds me of House of Cards in that everyone that Disraeli has as an opponent or even, like, a foil, is a fucking idiot. Oh, yeah. And, like, that's why he constantly succeeds, is because everyone else is a fucking dumb fuck. (laughs) It reminded me of House of Cards, or, like, and this is one of my favorite plays ever, Sheridan's The Rivals, where, like, of course everybody who is not our hero is a caricature of idiocy. And I don't think they were going for caricature, and they didn't hit it. I mean, people didn't literally have names that, like, pointed them out as jackasses. They were real people. Yeah. But their plans were just bad yeah my favorite part was when disraeli had to explain to a guy that if you are following a foreign agent who is going to tell his master something you can't take two days before you go (laughs) and i think that that's we should probably do like the very quick summation of the film i mean basically this kind of begins the Oscar fetish for actor disappearing into the role of a lifetime thing. But it's not really a biopic. It's just about this one part of Disraeli's life where he is trying to buy up shares for the Suez Canal for the crap. Yeah, the the weird thing about it is, like, it is inconsistently a biopic it is a biopic that is like wedded to this weird comedy of manners about a young couple in the british aristocracy getting together and they're not real people no they're just like written into the movie to be a couple that he's he and his wife are trying to match make yeah it's kind of very very strange also just the politics of the actual disraeli are not great and and that complicates the film in some ways which the film just doesn't really deal with at all like disraeli is right his party is in the right the like opposing party is on the wrong side of history and are fools which is not necessarily historically accurate no but i i did find because i was really nervous last week in the outro to last week's episode that 
because of the time and place and the fact that Disraeli was Jewish, though he didn't convert to Christianity, the real one, yeah. that this was going to be like horribly anti-Semitic. And it ended up not being at all. And the people who displayed any form of anti-Semitism were all the totally jackass villains. Yeah, this film is weird because it is imperialist and not, and like, totally unquestioningly thinks imperialism is good and not because oh, it's yeah. anti-Semitic. Which seems like a weird perspective. Yeah. For an American film. Not that anti-Semitism is a normal perspective. It's not. It's bad. Of all times and places, let's not say that it is normal to be anti-Semitic. But it is weird for a film nominated by the American Academy of, of uh, what is it? Arts and Sciences, Sciences Film and mo- Television. Whatever mo- Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, I believe. Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences, thank you. To honor such a blatantly imperialist movie. Yeah. Because the only other thing he's doing in this movie is getting Queen Victoria the title Empress. I think really that it's like, the play must have been like hugely famous and influential, right? Because this is such a like movie of a play movie. Like they don't even bother to dress up that there's like three settings for the entire fucking film. It is such a like, and I don't really mean that as an insult because there's like really great like movies that are like really super blatantly just the play. Just more people should watch this really good play. But like, I feel like it must have been because the play is very, very old compared to the, the play is 18 years older than the film. And so I think there must have been a, like, aspect of, like, they did it. They did a great job making this play into a film because I just don't understand the morality of this film being, like, something Hollywood was really excited about, like, ever. And certainly not post-World War One. Yeah. Because, yeah, the play is pre-World War One. Apparently Arliss and his wife, who plays Disraeli's wife in the movie, did this on stage and it was, like, a huge hit in England and then they did a silent version of it in 1921 so it was like every few years they just got together and did this play again <laughs> I mean it's fine I mean it's very very play-esque not like like I say um like all of the dialogue is also like that like everything Disraeli says is like supposed to be a clever moment, and like half to two-thirds of the time it is And then the other third of the time, it's like, dude, just fucking shut up. For me, I feel like Clarissa, who is one half of the fictional couple that has been inserted into this biopic. Yes. Had perhaps the wittiest exchange in the whole movie when she's talking to the guy that she initially rejects because he... He's just like, I'm a, I'm a gentleman, so I'm going to do nothing of importance because that would be tacky, essentially. Yeah. And she's saying something to him about how he hates Disraeli and his reply is, I neither like him nor dislike him. He's nothing to me. And her reply is, don't you feel lonely? And Charles says, what? And she says, well, you're the only man in all the world who neither likes nor dislikes Disraeli. <laughs> Okay, great. The do you, don't you feel lonely bit? That was super clever. There are clever bits to this movie. I think it's just that, like, I don't know. I have structural problems with it in that, like, after the first 15 minutes, everything until the last 15 minutes is, like, this weird shaggy dog story that's, like, almost completely unnecessary. 
a lot of the dialogue is too clever for its own good, and also I don't know if I want there to be an hour and a half long pay-on to Benjamin Disraeli, specifically for making the Queen of England the Empress of India, as if that was a great accomplishment to be lauded. Structurally, this movie is a lot of different things, and only one of them is good. Yes. There's essentially a spy caper that's happening in it that is just a mess, and is maybe three whole minutes of the movie. Can I take a moment to say that actually upset me more than anything? Because Disraeli is such a fucking smug prick about his plans being revealed to the spy who he himself hired as his secretary. And it's like, <laughs> dude, if you don't want the guy to be able to pick up on body language signals from people who come to your office, maybe don't fucking hire him to work closely and personally with you every fucking day. Yeah, that was one of the problems that I had was that it was supposed to be this totally brilliant move that he's like keeping his enemy closer. It's such a stupid but move. But they don't do anything with it. They do absolutely nothing with it. There's no like feeding him false information. There, the intrigue that is supposed to be there is like, it revolves around a single ridiculous sentence that I guess is supposed to be ostensibly as a code, which is that a ditch dug in sand grows the very best celery. Because he's talking about buying the shares for the Suez Canal, which is a, arguably a ditch dug in sand. But the, but celery? Is that like a, am I missing a late 20s reference to I think he was money? I think he was supposed to just say something there because he knew he was being overheard. And then the fact that the other guy brings it back up again later is like, oh, the guy is clever. Yeah, I mean, maybe, but he seemed very proud of himself on that and repeated it a lot. He did repeat it a lot. And then there's the weird thing where like, Apparently it was not just a like ad hoc code now that I think about it that the guy came up with because there's like a decoder ring for figuring out the celery joke that exactly that the spy woman could steal. But also it's such an obvious it's such an obvious code. It's not the eagle flies at midnight. Yeah. He literally references the thing. A ditch dug in sand would be a canal that is dug in Egypt. Yeah, it's also like... Oh, can we also, now that we're getting into what a mess the spy plot is, get into the revealed backstory for the female spy? Oh, please do. Which makes no <laughs> sense. Um, Mrs. Travers? Mrs. Travers, who Disraeli met once as a Russian refugee in Switzerland, I think, under a different name. I can't tell if ostensibly she was supposed to have been a Russian spy all the time, and Russia just keeps providing her with new titles in different nobilities throughout Europe, as if that is a thing that makes any sense. <laughs> Or if she was, in fact, a Russian refugee, but then she was like a money-grubbing Russian refugee, and then the Russians bought her and made her into a member of the British aristocracy, which still makes no fucking sense, but is at least like a, like, I don't, it just is nonsense. It's all fucking nonsense. It's 1929, and you're supposed to be completely fine with the idea of, like, the Russian czar as a criminal mastermind who's got it all figured out. 
definitely the biggest threat England faces and definitely the, like, most threatening power on the world stage that has it all figured out because of their complete control over their people is, like, maybe we should have updated this play after 1911 because some things have happened. (laughs) The whole spy plot is really, really poorly done and is where this movie is a disastrous failure. Luckily, there's a lot more of this movie that is quite successful, and that, for me, is the story of Benjamin Disraeli, ladies' man. Up until the last scene of the movie, I thought the only reason they included Disraeli's wife was so that you would not assume that he was macking on Clarissa. Because he is macking on Clarissa super hard throughout this entire film. He is perhaps the greatest slash worst wingman of all time. Because he's like... Mm-hmm. I'm definitely going to get you worked up, except now you've got to direct all that energy over here. But also, how does that guy compare? Because that guy is like 20 and is not terribly clever. He's very handsome. He's got that going for him, but mm-hmm. like in the most generic way possible. I'll say this for him. He does not make overcomplicated plans for no reason. <laughs> Which is maybe a thing Clarissa should value more highly in a man. Uh, maybe. But, like, I do get where, like, hmm, one is the Prime Minister of England who keeps talking about the greatness of the nation-state and the things that they could do if they just believed in themselves. And the other one is a guy who is thinking of building small one-bedroom apartments. His ambition is not huge. But then, luckily, he Disraeli inspires him to follow his true calling in life, which is going and cashing checks in Egypt. When you actually put it like that, that seems to be less ambitious than building anything. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, I think that was why I like initially hated it because when it was like setting up the political landscape, I really hated their fake political landscape where like people who didn't want to go out and conquer new territory for the British Empire have no ambition and people who did are automatically good. And weirdly, the conservative party is completely free of racists, and all of the racists are in the liberal party that doesn't want war. And it is bad to try and, like, build model homes in England, but it is good to go and... I mean, I assume Disraeli is super talking up the degree to which the dude's life is in danger just to turn Clarissa on, because she seems like the kind of girl that's into that sort of thing. Oh, definitely. But, like, they do make a big thing about how noble he is for risking his life by doing this thing, which is kind of a stupid thing. Yeah, it is kind of a stupid thing, and almost doesn't work, because the checks that he's cashing are from a bank that apparently went bankrupt. Because of... Because of Mrs. Mrs. Travers and company. Which, again, is like, man, how does the fucking czar do it? <laughs> yeah, there was basically some kind of sabotage on the bank, and then the secretary gets called in. Or no, not the secretary. There's a banker who gets called in, and he forces him to sign something saying that he's going to give 
unlimited credit to Myers's bank. Can I also, can I ask a question? Because this genuinely may have just been something I didn't get. Yeah, of course. Was there any point to the long sequence where he tricks Mrs. Travers into confessing? Because, like, he already knew all that, right? And it's not like he used her confession for anything at any point, or she suffered any consequences. No, I mean, the only... The only point that I can see to it is the, I guess at this point, not traditional, but it's the whole comic book supervillain thing of like, now I will tell you the whole plot and he's bankrupt. Except there was no interesting monologue. She literally just says, because I wrote it down, Myers is bankrupt. Bankrupt, bankrupt. Myers is bankrupt. That's the high point of her villain monologue. And if he had the anti-Semitic asshole from the Bank of England, like, hiding behind the curtains, and he heard the whole thing, and then that was what got him to patriotically sign on to this thing, then that would have fucking been something. But, like, with this, it's like, dude, you're on a timeline, and you're taking, like, a half hour out of your day to, one, risk being discovered by this woman, to two, get her to tell you things you already know, to three, waste time before a guy comes over and you just threaten him into doing what you want. Which apparently he had no leverage for that th- for those threats. Like, he confesses to the women after he leaves, after the banker leaves, that, like, I was bluffing. Yeah, which, again, <laughs> is supposed to make him seem super-duper clever, and instead, one, could have hidden the guy behind a curtain, classic 19th century bit would have worked great two even if you didn't hide the dude behind the curtain it kind of actually like the guy kind of has a point that the like prime minister is a power mad asshole for like intimidating the bank of england into getting what he wants even if he is bluffing like the movie kind of wants it to be that like eh, i was bluffing so it's fine because the prime minister doesn't actually have this power and it's like That's not how the exercise of power works, my dude. That isn't... That that doesn't work like that. It it doesn't make it okay to threaten to revoke somebody's bank charter if you couldn't actually do it. It's not okay to threaten to strangle someone to death just because you don't have the hand strength to do that. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing is like, it's not even that because it's, it's that he's intimidating him with the weight of the entire British government behind him and then going like, yeah, except that like, if I actually did that through the right channels, I'd probably get in trouble. And it's like, well, I mean, yeah, dude, I think the dude knew that. Like I, <laughs> you were just saying you were going to do it anyway. <laughs> to the part that, that I really liked, which was Benjamin Disraeli ladies man he does have a bit of that that he incorporates into the spy plot though it got a little creepy which was when he grabs mrs traver's hand which has the uh coin in it the code breaking paper in it it looked like a coin or coin sorry i couldn't figure out how it worked but go on the secret decoder ring yeah and he's like saying that she has really nice fingers that are really great for like wrapping around things and then is like prying her hand open small objects i think that was super creepy and that was the point where it was like oh yeah ladies men are terrible i forgot 
But he had, like, a pretty great feminist, like, well, but even this was tinged with, I treat women like equals because it impresses them. Because he's talking to Charles about (laughs) Clarissa, and I don't remember exactly what they were talking about, but Charles says, I don't talk to women about politics. And he says, like, so smooth. Disraeli is like, I do. Like, that's the secret, is just pretend that they are smart enough to understand it and they'll love you. Until the last scene of the movie, which really establishes, like, their love by him, like, almost choosing his wife over the queen, which is unheard of. (laughs) Um, But, like... Until then, all of the supposedly charming interactions between him and his wife are him negging his wife. Like, it's all, like, him going like, oh, you know I only married you for your money, ha ha ha. And it's like, I know you're joking, and this is supposed to indicate you guys' true love, but, like, it does seem like she constantly keeps things from you to avoid you feeling stress. And you constantly insult her for the bit. And I don't know why this marriage is supposed to be super duper healthy and great. I don't know. That's almost like a very, that's a very English quality. And I don't know that people our age have that anymore. But like I've known older English people and the way that they talk to their friends to show that they love them. Oh yeah. I like would not speak to a dog that way. (laughs) Yes, no, I absolutely think that, like, it is trying to be reflective of, like, actual Victorian dialogue and relationships. Like, sure. (laughs) But that is something that Mrs. Disraeli actually said. Apparently, historically, she said that Dizzy married me for my money, but if he could marry me again for love, he would. Okay. Apparently that was, like, just giving her a line in history to him because okay well because it's a good line because it's a good line yeah but she does seem really lovely and he is concerned when it turns out that she's ill though again absolutely nothing comes of that it's like oh she's really sick okay well here's the thing about that last scene is it kind of seemed like it came from a better movie that acknowledged her as the main character of the thing Honestly, you don't have to rejigger the plot very much for this to be a movie about how, like, she actually solved everything. Yeah, that it's the, like, behind every successful man is a woman who's doing all the work kind of movie. Yeah, instead it kind of uses her as the, like, aha, now I've got it thing of, like... She just says a lot of words, and the brilliant man is the one that figures out that when you put all of the words she just said together in order, they're a plan for the thing he needs to do. (laughs) Um. I mean, I do think that there was some, yeah, he put it all together, I guess, but that she was the more observant would be my way of giving her the credit that she's very clearly due. Yeah, there's kind of a thing where, like, he kind of keeps stuff from her, and then whenever he, like, actually tells her, she's immediately like, oh, because of X, Y, and Z. Yes, that makes perfect sense. And it's like, you could just you could just tell her, dude. <laughs> she's, I mean, she handled that smashing her door, in a, her finger in a door thing. She could probably handle that somebody who got invited to her garden party was a spy that she needed to keep an eye on. I mean, probably. I feel like I like am continually nitpicking this movie, which says something in that, like, I can't just make the blanket statement of, this movie was garbage, the way that I could last week. 
it's definitely not garbage. I, I think it the way that it does resemble the Hollywood review of 1929 is I think it would work better on stage. Yeah, I totally agree. I would like, especially in the last act where they're all at his like private residence, I did kind of think like, I'd watch this play. I'd like watch a revival of this at the National Theater. I bet it would be like really fucking good because I bet they would find ways to undercut the weird imperialist parts of this play. Yeah, like some director would play with it and it would become like a comment on the imperialism instead of just rah rah let's make victoria the empress of india because that's okay at all but i also just think like a lot about it just works better on stage there are times where it's like you want the pause for laughs they're like i don't talk to women about politics i do it's like that's a wink to the audience as much as it is to correct charles and without having a live audience it doesn't fall flat but it doesn't have the sparkle that i think it would have if you had 200 people laughing at it yeah and i also think like again it's not like the performances were garbage but they were very theatrical performances like this is clearly a guy that's been playing this part since 1911 doing it again in 1929 uh yeah And, like, to some degree, that's good, but it's weird because I think it's the first movie we've watched that has pauses for laugh lines. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's also sort of the first movie we've watched that was funny. There were some funny parts in Wings where Claire Bow was being, like, adorable and running around haphazardly, but you don't have to pause. And there was the occasional punchline in the Broadway melody. Yeah, God, I just think of that movie as being so sad, though. Oh, it's super duper sad, but it does not know how sad it is. It's funny because it's like, it's a tour de force acting role where this guy completely becomes the character. But it's also kind of just a lighthearted comedy of manners more than it is anything else. And everything else in it distracts from it being a great lighthearted comedy of manners the part of this movie that has stakes takes up maybe 10 minutes of the film i think that's generous maybe by half yeah (laughs) like it's weird it's that scene in the library in act one with the guy from the bank of england and then it's all the mrs travers stuff in act two And then it's maybe, maybe, maybe like 30 seconds of the 10 Downing Street stuff where the secretary figures out what the plan is. Those are all the parts of the movie where like there are actual stakes where something could go wrong. And the rest of it is just kind of a delightful comedy about two young people getting together during (laughs) Benjamin Disraeli being prime minister of England. With his help. What I really start to see it as is less a biopic and more something like Shakespeare in Love, which is like not a Shakespeare biopic. It is a fictional love story where Shakespeare is involved. And this is a fictional love story where Benjamin Disraeli is involved. And if it honestly, if it kind of really took that formula where like almost Benjamin Disraeli was like a secondary character in this and like at points people just run in and are like yo Disraeli just bought the Suez Canal it's crazy (laughs) the like almost like um this is the second time I'm bringing this up in a podcast in a week but like the original pitch for the West Wing where you were never supposed to see Martin Sheen he was supposed to come in for like a scene every episode or two because he was too important to be hanging out with these fucking 
books <laughs> in the, that do all the work. If it had been that, I think I would have really loved this film instead of just going like, yeah, it's fine, which is kind of my reaction to it in the end. Um, I, I think I enjoyed it more than it being fine, but I also have a tendency to like comedy of manners in general or comedies of manners which is not necessarily your jam i can get into them but i do need a i mean yes i did send you a text going oh christ it's also a comedy <laughs> of manners but i think it's because the genre mashup of that and like a pay on to a political figure i have at best very complicated feelings about does not seem like a natural match to me and it wasn't a natural match. No, and the and the level of intrigue that they tried to run as well in it was not, it just doesn't make sense. Because when you have intrigue in a drawing room comedy, the intrigue is silly. It's somebody got a letter that they thought was from somebody else, and now they think someone's in love with them, but really it was intended for the friend or whatever. Man, if they overlapped the spy communique plotline with the two young lovers trying to reconcile plotline... I would have been super duper into that in a like, they keep sending each other coded messages, but only some people understand they're coded. And so it just ends up being a wacky mistaken identity plot about these two young lovers who are both kind of worthless in their own way. I don't know. I like, I keep pitching alternate versions of this and I think instead we should just like, let's rate this movie. So this movie, <laughs> I will give this movie I'll give it a five. And I want to go higher than that because the parts of it that I like, I would give a solid seven and a half. But because it was trying to be all things to all people and never really like got to be any of them for anyone, I'm going to give it a five. Well, see, now I almost feel like I need to go lower because I was going to give it a five and make a whole argument about how like vaguely exasperated sigh is a, is a five. Like, yeah, it's a movie. It's fine. It does movie things. There are good performances. It does things that are good. I feel like I have to actually give it multiple scores. Because the comedy of manners plot, I'm going to give a seven and a half. Oh, that's, I see, that's a That's too high? I mean, that's where I am with it. Okay. I thought it was charming. I liked Clarissa and, and Charles because they were totally the model for the young couple in any given restoration comedy. Where it's like... She wants someone gallant, and he thinks that people who are gallant are kind of without class. It's funny. I mean, yes. I, I think I guess I was just, like, waiting for there to be more to it than that. And when there wasn't, it was hard for me to go above, like, a 6.5 or a 7 to that stuff. It was well done in terms of, like, actually functionally doing what it needed to do which is a standard a lot of the films we have watched have not met. And hell. But that's kind of all it was. But the spy plot, the spy plot, I'm giving a one. That's fair. That's our lowest and I will not go above that. <laughs> because the spy plot was so simplistic. There was no real intrigue. There was no brilliant, there was no James Bonding here at all. Like, and not even old school, mostly sips martinis, James Bonding. It was like a bunch of really stupid people that would have been easy to get 
anything over on, so there was nothing intriguing about it at all. I mean, it was a shaggy dog story. It was, he yells at the guy from the bank, and the guy from the bank is anti-Semitic and goes, I'll never give you the money. And then at the end of the film, he goes, you will give me the money. And the guy from the bank goes, okay. In terms of <laughs> actual, functional, important things that occurred in that plot line, that's it. That's the whole thing. That is basically the whole thing, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I'm going to give it a five for being a little bit of a mess. I'm also going to, like, knock a few points off for some kind of creepy sexism that happens in it. Mm -hmm. I hesitate to call it misogyny because, boy, no one loves women as much as Disraeli. (laughs) But the bit with yanking that woman's hands open just, like, made my skin crawl. Yeah, I I think it was... No, I don't want to go through a whole thing of, like, here's what I think they were going for. I kind of don't care. It was just weird and creepy. You don't lay hands on people that you barely know. I mean, like, they have a history. Even if they're spies. Even if they're spies. And you certainly don't do, like, a flirty slash sinister thing at the same time. Here's how I thought that was going to go, is she was going to be into it because it was going to let her get information on Disraeli. And instead, she was like, what's this guy doing? This is really weird and creepy and not okay. And, like, let go of my hand. And I'm like, you're right, (laughs) Russian spy. Good call. Yeah, can't can't really fault you for that part. Maybe for the Russian spy part, whatever. But for the stop yanking my fingers open from my closed fist part, no, you're you're in the right there. Yeah. So that brings us to next week. Yes. Actually, wait. So what's your what's your final score? Because I'm still gonna I'll I'll give it a six. I'll go up to a six. Oh, then I will go with a five. All right. I'll I will then I will stay at a five. Honestly, I was probably going to stay at a 5 anyway. I was going to, like, jokingly go, like, 4.5, just to make it clear I do not like this movie as much as Susan. (laughs) But, like, no, I think a 5 is... I think a 5 is fair for this movie. Would we say, should people watch this movie? Uh, I think that a certain group of people should watch this movie. Like, if you just love restoration comedy and you want something similar that is not an actual restoration comedy this movie would satisfy that. I'm going to say no, because I'm going to say we're going to see better examples of restoration comedies on the history of best pictures in the Academy. If we don't, if it's like 1945 and there hasn't been a good restoration comedy that isn't grafted onto a very weird quasi-biopic spy plot, (laughs) then I'll go like, yeah, I mean, maybe get it out of your system with Disraeli. Or maybe like go watch a production of The Importance of Being Earnest somewhere. Which is also not a restoration comedy, but is a good... It's a comedy of manners. I I know. It is a comedy of manners and not a restoration comedy or a drawing room comedy. I would definitely recommend people watch that before they watch this. Yes. So, to next week's, which is The Love Parade. (laughs) Also, Susan, I'm sorry. We do this by a Google Hangouts call, And your video and your audio have been slightly off sync for this entire call. And the look of disappointment on your (laughs) face when I called the importance of being earnest a fucking restoration comedy. And I like knew it wasn't as it was coming out of my mouth. I was like, no, it's written later. It's not technically a restoration comedy. But you just like looked at me (laughs) like, oh, now I have to know for the rest of my life that David... Is, doesn't really know the classification of restoration comedy. <laughs> that is not where I was going with that. <laughs> 
It was more, uh, now I have to make this correction so that people listening to this don't think that David doesn't know what the definition of a restoration comedy is. For the record, David absolutely knows what a restoration comedy is. Which is a... Which is super duper important, as we've established from the five minutes of conversation about it we've now had. But next week, next week. Next week. The Love Parade. We're talking about The Love Parade, which is a great fucking title. It's also a musical comedy, which so far we've got a 50-50 batting average on. Only if you classify The Hollywood Review of 1929 as a musical comedy, which I'm gonna say it's not, because it's just a review. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, In which case we have a 100% success rate on musical comedies. One for one! (laughs) So I'm feeling pretty good about this second one. Yeah, and hopefully it'll be great. And they'll have a better song than the Broadway melody. And they won't sing it 12 times. (laughs) Yeah, if this movie has five separate songs in it, it's gonna just rocket to the top of our list of best, best picture. Um... (laughs) That is a low bar. It really is, but, I mean, they're still learning how to make movies right now. That is true. Clearly. That is true. What makes me nervous about it is that the plot description on Wikipedia is four sentences long. Which is either great for a musical comedy, Mm -hmm. but the last time we had a plot description that was that short was in Old Arizona. That's, yes, that's fair. So... Um... It's a toss-up. Tune in next week to find out. And now for our famous catchphrase. (laughs) No one can deny that that was a movie that we watched. (laughs) No one. Bye, everyone. Don't deny it. (laughs) 